Katerina Kamali had a chance that few of us ever get to genuinely change people's lives for the better on a large scale. This is the story of what she did when presented with that chance and why she gave it up for something that she believes will ultimately be far more significant. Well, it's an incredibly exciting future for us here in Australia. We're about to embark on probably the biggest change in, since the Industrial Revolution in our energy system. I'm Adam Morton and this is The Innovators, a rewired podcast for ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Back in 2012, while studying a Master of Environmental Economics at the London School of Economics, Katerina Kamali spent a few months working in the slums of Bangalore in India. It was a life-changing experience. Hey, Katerina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Tell us a bit about what it was that took you to Bangalore initially and what you found there. Well, I'd been looking at the, the real issue of energy, access to energy and energy poverty for some time in both my work life and my studies. And if you have a look at that at that huge issue, the huge problem of poverty and climate change, the real nexus of that is in India. It's the country with more people than any other that don't have access to electricity. So I decided to, to go over there and do my master's research looking at the people who were living at the bottom of the pyramid in city slum communities, living with just a kerosene lantern to light up their life. Um, and that's really where it all began. Right. So this was more an idea at this stage as part of a master's research. But you had a formative experience while you were there, or when you were leaving the country, actually, in July 2012. I did. I did. So I was lucky enough to to go over there with a, a couple of other fantastic young Australians. And we'd been looking at this issue from an academic perspective, looking at different business models around the world as to what you could do to provide solar energy in slums. And then we decided to, to live in and work with a few particular slum communities around a big quarry area in Bangalore to see what we could do there and to try some business models. But then we, as we all do, had to return to our work and studies. And I had a very incredible moment where we were flying out actually from Delhi to London. And it was around 2am in the morning. And we flew up and out of Delhi and we looked down over that twinkling metropolis, which I'm sure many people have experienced and actually saw all the lights go out. And when we arrived in London, we discovered that we had been flying over India as it experienced the world's largest blackout um, and on that night and it was on the front of every paper there was 700 million people so 10 percent of the world's population left in darkness which was really an aha moment for me to return to India mainly because not only were there a whole lot of people who had access to electricity plunged into darkness but half of those people so three to four hundred thousand don't actually have access to electricity every night and that wasn't the front the front page of every paper, but it is the truth. So that was the real reason to return to India and, and to see what we could do to solve that problem. So why did that moment particularly resonate for you so much? I think to see it firsthand from the sky like that um, is incredibly powerful. And we, we'd we been looking for, you know, a reason to etra, a reason to say, you know, is this something that we should do now? Is this the moment that we should go back and, and you know, start to, to do something really big and at scale? And when you can see it at scale like that, it gave us the impetus to, to do exactly that. Okay, so that was the moment. And there are three to 400 million people there without electricity every day. 
So what did that moment prompt you to do? What, what was the next step? Well, it prompted us to return to, to Bangalore and then across India and to start a social business that provided solar lights to households that live in city slum communities, in homes not much bigger than the size of your dining room table with just a tub hole and sheet over them. And what we wanted to do was to provide an affordable solution for these families, so something that would replace their kerosene lighting um, and would not cost too much more than that. And so we did a huge amount of trial and error and within a few months set up Pollinate Energy, which is now, uh, after some five years, the largest supplier of solar lighting solutions and now a whole lot of other wellbeing improving solutions to slum families across India. Can you tell us a bit about how, I mean, it seems an extraordinary challenge from an idea to turn that into something that's actually meaningful in people's lives. What's the process you go through to try and get an organisation like Pollinate Energy up? How did you get off the ground? Well, uh, a huge amount of trial and error, I must say, to start with. So what we did was we brought over some of the best and brightest people primarily from Australia, from many universities here in Australia. Um, and we started trialling a whole lot of solar energy products. Um, and then we started applying different business models. So we looked at all the microfinance models around the world and we realised that there were three parts to this problem. There was a technology part, a, a solar lighting part, there was a financing part, and there was a distribution part. And once we trialled all solutions in all those three areas came up with a solution, which was basically to launch what we call pollinators. So they're micro entrepreneurs who go and work in these slum communities and they provide lighting solutions, solar lighting solutions and a finance package. So it costs families about what they're paying for kerosene per week for five to eight weeks for one of these lights. Um, they get the light up front and they pay back what they were paying for kerosene and then they'll own that solar system for five, 10, 20 years as long as they need it. Right. So this is a little portable solar system they're getting? I it is. So it right. is. And we now provide a whole host of, of different products. But we started with a very simple portable solar solution with a, a solar panel not much bigger than an iPad um, that had a mobile phone charging port. Interestingly, people in slums were willing to pay double for a mobile phone, a solar-powered mobile phone charger than they were for a light um, and, and a lighting solution. And importantly, it, it's portable. So for the women and men who will be up in the morning before before sunrise collecting wood or going to the bathroom, they can take that light with them and, and keep them safe from, from both predators and animals and things like that, which was really important to them. So lots of contextual um, trial and error as well. Yeah. And so what was the cost for one of these little portable systems? So for our very basic unit, it was about 20 Australian dollars. Um, and now up to, we've got units with a whole lot, a whole lot more so they can charge um, they can charge tablets, they can charge phones. We're looking at um, different refrigeration options. So they go up to, you know, $100, $200. So what we wanted to provide was a ladder so that these families could start with solar lighting and then get a whole host of other solar solutions so that they would never need to get connected to a coal-fired electricity grid if they didn't want to. And tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day role in this operation. Once the idea was in place and you were bringing in expertise from elsewhere and you were getting your micro entrepreneurs uh, signing them up who were going around to the slums to roll this out. How did you keep this running? What was your position? 
So I did absolutely anything as you do when you have a startup. And I was very lucky to be um, surrounded by some other co-founders who were also absolutely brilliant. So I guess the day-to-day involved a lot of time in slum communities. So trialing products, selling products, a huge amount of time training our pollinators. So all of our staff. Um, And then the third aspect of my work is we bring over these brilliant Australian volunteers for our fellowships and professionals programs. And so a lot of our work was linking up uh, Indian and Australian um, young people, young entrepreneurs, and getting them to come over and work with us on providing new products or launching in a new area. We started off very small in in just 20 slum communities, um, but very quickly we developed an Uber-like phone application and were able to grow to first the 500 slums in Bangalore and then replicate that model across India. So we had to bring on a lot of people from India and abroad, particularly Australia, to come and help us do that. So it was a lot of time spent training all these young, brilliant people and helping them replicate our model across the country. So how many people have you helped? So this year we reached our 100,000th family, which was very exciting for us. We're now um, in five key cities around uh, around India, the five uh, biggest cities with largest slum populations, and we're serving um, all of the slum populations in those cities. So it was a real milestone for us to be able to reach all of those those people um, and now to replicate our model across the 52 Indian cities with over a million people, which is a staggering statistic in itself. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I imagine when you're rolling out a project like this, there must be some specific stories that really resonate about people you've been able to help. Is there anything in particular that has stood out for you and during this process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, it started off being about providing a, a solar energy solution that was at the nexus of poverty and climate change. But very quickly, once you start working with these incredible families and particularly incredible women, it becomes much more about the women. And there was one particular woman um, I remember working with very early on. Her name was Lolita, and she had come, like most people who live in slum communities in, in city centres, come from a rural area to the city to find work with her husband and when I met Lolita she was an incredible woman and she uh, was 14 and she had a newborn and a two-year-old and she was working uh, from about 4am to 8am and the main form of work is in construction so um, the women and men basically uh, use move bricks um, around construction sites in, in bowls on their heads and she was the most profound woman, young woman, um, girl even that I've ever worked with. She wanted a solar light so her her daughter could study um, and go to school and so that she'd have more opportunities and so that she wouldn't be left in the dark because I remember her resounding words were, you know, bad things happen to, to girls who are left in the dark. Um, so, you know, she was supporting herself, her husband, at that time he wasn't working, her children and both her in-laws in, in this small tarpaulin household and yet she could put aside a little bit of her income every week to have a solar light for her family and it was just incredible. How does that sort of experience coming across somebody whose life you're changing so profoundly affect you? Well, it's incredibly moving and, you know, obviously at the time, quite emotional actually because, you know, Lolita is one of hundreds of thousands of women across India that that experience this, you know, every day. I think the statistic at the moment is of India's 1.2 billion people, um, over 50% of them are under 25. Um, So, you know, you've got 
a quarter of a billion women across India who are looking at the prospects of their life and want it to be electrified, but also want a, a good and sustainable future for their family. Um, so, you know, the scale of that of that problem, but also that opportunity is just so immense. But taking it back down to, to women like Lolita every time kept the motivation very high. So after the break, we'll talk to Katerina about why she then chose to give up that sort of day-to-day involvement with Pollinate Energy and move back to Australia and what she did next. I don't think they're very common. I think they're quite expensive in comparison to normal cars. I think that's why we don't have very many of them. Yeah, not common at all. I don't, like, I don't think we have the facilities to go interstate. So, um, if say, if you're just in Melbourne or Sydney, it's fine. But anywhere else, it's not okay. Nissan, BMW, Volvo, Tesla. Electric vehicles are hot. Everyone's doing them. They're the sexy, consumer-friendly vision of what a low-carbon future could look like. And sales are booming around the world. But not in Australia. At least, not in the last year. Why is that? To help answer... I've got Phil Conn here for an encore appearance of Phil Explains the World. Phil, a little while ago, Arena helped fund a report put together by the think tank Climate Works to look at the state of electric vehicles in Australia. What did it tell us? It told us that we're not selling enough EVs yet in Australia, but that there's huge interest and huge potential. Globally, there's about 2 million EVs on the road, and in 2016, uh, 750,000 EVs were were sold, but comparing those global stats to Australia, the picture isn't so bright, so there's a lot of work left to do. So in Australia, we only sold just under 1,400 models. Wow. So that's not a lot of cars. That was 0.1% of the Australian market in 2016. But I think what the report also said is that that EVs are really exciting and a massive massive growth opportunity uh, in the Australian automotive industry. So as far as being a driver, if you'll excuse the pun, of the energy revolution, where do EVs sit? So transport's a really major contributor to Australia's greenhouse gas emissions, coming in at about 15% of our carbon emissions in Australia. So if we can swap our uh, vehicles from petrol and diesel across to electric vehicles and make sure that those EVs are charged by renewables, there's a massive opportunity for um, decarbonising transport in Australia. But to make that happen, there's got to be a bunch of technology and also policy innovation that goes along with that. And some of the things that we're looking at at the moment at Arena is, is the ways that you actually charge a huge, you might charge a large EV fleet uh, from the grid. Because one of the things that, that we need to work out how to do if we're going to use renewables to charge all our EVs is how we don't blow the grid up in the process. Because EVs take a lot of energy to charge. And if you plug them all in at the same time when everyone gets home from work, that puts real stress on the grid. So working out kind of smart charging um, and, and charging infrastructure solutions is something that we're really interested in. So when I think of electric vehicles, for some reason, I like automatically think of Back to the Future and floating DeLoreans. But that all seems like a long way off. And yeah, I know it's based on the complete fiction. And so perhaps it won't ever happen. But what are some of the real-world conditions for EVs to make that next step to be a mass-market product? So there's a couple of things in in the work that ClimateWorks put together for as part of their report for Arena. There's a few key drivers that they they identified. One is really basic, is the availability of models. So uh, in Australia, consumers don't have a a really broad choice of EVs. And in particular, the price point of the EVs that are available tends to be skewed towards higher cost models 
So everyone got excited when we saw Tesla kind of showcase, you know, giving us a bit of a teaser with the next version of their Roadster. That's a $250,000 car. That is not a mass market car. I'd love one, by the way, but, uh, but probably not going to be something that I'm going to get my hands on anytime soon. So there was only kind of three models that were available in Australia last year for less than $60,000. So just that basic thing about a broader choice and lower price points is a really key factor. Sounds obvious, but it's just one of the things that we haven't, we don't see in Australia yet. And there's this chicken and egg scenario where sales aren't high, so car makers and dealers don't make stock available, which then you know doesn't enable sales to occur. Some of the other stuff is is also around charging infrastructure so people still have a lot of range anxiety it's called you know they don't want to be driving down the street and run out of uh, uh, power in the battery in their ev and so government or private sector investment in charging infrastructure is is also seen as critical to enabling the take up uh, or broader take up of evs Uh, and that's something that we're seeing a little bit of so over in western australia uh, the royal automobile club over in wa helped to roll out some public charging points um, Tesla has their supercharging network, um, Energy Queensland uh, and the NRMA in, in, in New South Wales have all made public announcements about new kind of fast charging networks, as well as increasingly you're seeing charging infrastructure going in at office buildings or in public car parks as well, which is really encouraging. Okay, to continue then with the Back to the Future theme, it sounds like we're not quite at flux capacitor levels yet but with new models and updates released in Australia in the next year there's expectation that the pace of change within the electric vehicle market is set for a shake-up. So to keep up to date with this and all the latest news in renewable energy check out arenawire at arena.gov.au forward slash blog and Phil thanks again for joining us. No worries thanks David. Over to you Adam. So Katarina, you've been working on this project doing public good in an area that's really in need and you felt you were getting results, but you gave it up and returned to Australia. Why? Well, you know, it was a huge decision um, and I don't know if I'll ever truly give it up. Pollen Energy was, you know, like my firstborn, so I'm still very much involved. But what I was seeing was, you know, the scope of the the challenge that we have with climate change is really just so immense. And I think I had naively believed that the UN or or someone would step in with some fabulous funding and really solve this problem. But being at the front line, I realised that actually that wasn't the case. And in fact, what we really need in the next five to eight years is an incredible amount of funding to move into providing the types of services that Pollinate Energy was providing, but also some really disruptive and innovative technology Um, And at that time, the Australian government announced the Innovation Fund, which was to be and and still is the world's largest venture capital fund for clean energy technology. And I really felt that if we could start to mobilise that capital and, and quantums, hopefully 10 to 100 times more than that, to really drive innovation in clean tech and rapidly distribute that uh, those innovations across across the developing world as well as in Australia that we would have a mammoth impact on the clean energy revolution so I decided to shift my focus there for the next few years to see what impact that we could have okay so the innovation fund is jointly managed by arena and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which is where you work. Can you tell us a little more about what it does, what its reason for existence is? Absolutely. So the Innovation Fund is Australia's Green Bank's fund to fund the next generation of 
clean technology. So it's a traditional venture capital fund in some ways, but it has a complete focus on growing Australian businesses that are creating products and services that will reduce emissions from the renewable energy sector to energy efficiency to low emissions technologies, and then helping those companies rapidly expand across Australia and and across the world. What's your role in all of this? So at the Innovation Fund, we are a venture capital fund. So I have the joy of being um, one of the, the members at the table when, you know, it's a bit of a dragon's den type um, scenario where we have all these brilliant companies come in and pitch to us um, and looking at them and, and seeing which ones we can invest in and, and really grow the energy market in Australia. And how do you decide who gets the money? So the first criteria is that these companies need to be looking at this energy revolution that we we are embarking on and providing a solution to reducing emissions. So that's the number one criteria. Um, But that can be across any sector. So it can be renewable energy, it could be um, mining, it could be manufacturing, it could be property and building energy efficiencies. It really can be in any sector as long as we can see that that company is producing a product or service that is reducing the overall emissions here in Australia and, and a technology that we can hopefully export as well. Can you tell us a bit about some of the projects that have been backed so far? Sure can. So we've we've backed a number of projects already. The Innovations Fund's been running for a year now. Um, some of the sexier solutions, are we've backed a, a company called Carbon Revolution. Um, they provide carbon fibre wheels for um, high-performance vehicles that are super light and can reduce the the energy usage of vehicles um, by, you know, 6 to 8%, which is exciting. Um, we've also started to invest in a lot of behind-the-meter um, companies, companies like Wattwatches that, dev- that develop a, a really cool piece of hardware that sits on your, um, on your meter box and allows you to manage your solar and your energy efficiency appliances in your home. We've... We've invested in a company called GreenSync, and I know Arena's also invested um, in projects with GreenSync, and GreenSync is a really innovative company that's basically trying to create a new world of energy where we can trade energy like you do on the ASX. Um, and their products and services are going to really revolutionise the way that, you know, everybody interacts with their energy system and sells their solar and, and buys next, their next-door neighbour's solar to turn on their kettle. It's really exciting. One project that I know that you've been investing in that particularly caught my eye is Relectrify. Can you tell us a little bit about that? They are a very cool company, young startup um, run by two very dynamic young men down in Melbourne. And they basically take old uh, batteries from electric vehicles and then refurbish those batteries so that you can use them to power your home. And it's really smart technology because, as you'd know, in the energy sector, a battery for an electric vehicle is usually in series. So it's only as good as the weakest link, but they can put their technology on top of that battery, restore it to basically its full use, and then you can repurpose that for use in the home so that people can get access to battery storage in their home much, much cheaper than the current options that are that are on the table, the Teslas and, and other products that are out there. Okay. Now, I imagine something that you would be asked quite a bit and many people out there might think is, well, if these projects have that much potential, they presumably could be privately funded. What's the rationale for putting public money into these projects and what's the expectation on return? 
Absolutely. And most of these projects are publicly funded and privately funded. So we expect that most of these companies will move into um, private rounds of funding and often our co-investors are private investors as well. So we hope to get, you know, venture capital type returns five to 10 years. But we also recognise that the energy sector is very different from some of the other sectors where VC is prominent, like fintech, etc. So we take a longer term time horizon because we want these companies to really grow and flourish, but we do expect that they'll get the same types of returns and because of that, we're starting to see a lot of um, appetite from uh, co-investors, high net worth institutional investors, um, which is really exciting. We're seeing this to grow into a really big part of the economy. So what sort of timeframes are we talking about and, and what specifically rates of return are required? So we, we take a five to 10 year view on all of our investments. Um, and like most venture capital, depending on which area well, at what period we invest. So from seed to series D, we could have anything from a two to 10 plus X return on our investments. Right. I think it'd be striking and surprising to a lot of people how much of what you're doing is really more at the uh, behind the meter sort of app development level of things rather than new uh, centralised power stations, whether they be wind farms or solar farms. Uh, Is that the sort of area that we're increasingly going to see public money going towards? Do you think there is still a role for these sorts of funds to go into old school, large scale power farms as well? Absolutely. Our focus is more on the high tech software behind the meter plays at the moment. Um, Also hardware technologies like battery storage and um, inverter technology and things like that. But for, for the innovation fund and for the revolution that we're seeing in the energy market, it's all about how we integrate with the energy market much more effectively um, and allow it to be much more personalised. Um, so a lot of our investments are looking at, at software behind the meter. There is absolutely a role for investment still in large-scale renewable energy projects, but that is really the focus of the rest of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and many other funders. What we're looking to do is to fund the clean energy revolution of the next five to 20 years um, rather than s- some of the more traditional technologies. You've already done such different sorts of roles in the energy industry from Pollinate Energy, which was a small startup with large impact in a developing country, to moving to an organisation like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Where do you see yourself in 5, 10, 15 years? I really see myself staying at the forefront of providing finance to the best technologies in the world and helping deploy those technologies, both in Australia but also abroad. If we're going to really solve this this huge problem of our time of poverty and climate change, then we really need to be acting with the best technology in the countries that need it most within the next five to eight years. So that's where I see myself really deploying that capital as quickly as possible there. It's a great privilege in a way. You get to hear all these great pitches for what our future energy supply might look like. How optimistic are you about where these sorts of ideas are going to take us? And what do you imagine the future of Australia for energy will be? Well, it's an incredibly exciting future for us here in Australia. We're about to embark on probably the biggest change in since the Industrial Revolution in our energy system, and it's going to be very, very omnipresent for us. You know, we're going to be driving in automated, um, autonomous 
electric vehicles. We're going to have homes that are going to have regulated behind the metered systems to optimize our solar to our usage. We're going to be able to trade with our friends. And most importantly, we're going to be able to share these technologies with our neighbors, um, particularly in Asia, but also beyond to really democratize the way that we use energy and allow us to be much more interactive and, um, and cognizant of, of its, of its value in our lives. So I think it's going to be a very exciting, um, time for, for the energy industry, but also for all other industries that you use and utilize energy as we see prices start to move we see disruption we may see prices you know even you know some people are saying move to zero what does that mean for data what does that mean for manufacturing what does that mean for every other industry it's a real revolution and it's something i'm really excited about yeah it's great to hear a positive energy story thanks for sharing it with us katarina thank you imagine a virtual power plant what do you see it's hard to get your head around but it's a future where your home won't just take from the grid, but could help it to run. That's next time on The Innovators. I'm Adam Morton. Thanks for listening to The Innovators, a rewired podcast by Arena. You can find us and review us and tell us how much you like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also find out heaps more about renewable energy and the energy transition that's underway by following us on Facebook or going to the Arena Wire website where there's a stack of information updated daily. It's at arena.gov.au forward slash blog.